This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach, heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrack, and today I'm joined by legendary fashion editor-in-chief and acclaimed fashion journalist Bernadette Mora. For the 20 years that Bernadette Mora was at the Toronto Star, first as a fashion writer and then as the fashion editor, I remember blissfully turning to that fashion page in the Star, I believe it was every Thursday, and reading it with gusto. I always wondered about Bernadette's fascinating career and her life as a fashion journalist, where she got to interview such fashion world legends as Carl Lagerfeld, Marc Jacobs, Linda Evangelista, Cindy Crawford, and Gianni Versace. I can't wait to get her take, actually, on that four-part documentary, The Supermodels, later on in the program. And of course, for many years, she has also been the editor-in-chief of Canada's illustrious fashion magazine. Before we meet Bernadette, I want to tell you a little bit more about her. Bernadette Mora, as mentioned, has been covering Canadian and international international fashion scenes for over 30 years. Over her long career, as mentioned, she's interviewed some of the greatest internationally known fashion legends. Bernadette began her career in fashion journalism in the 80s as a freelance writer for the Canadian Press, the Toronto Star, and Flair magazine. She joined the Toronto Star in 1988, first as a fashion writer, and then was fashion editor from 1993 to 2008. Bernadette left the Star to create a website for jewelry lovers, which she ran for one year before joining Fashion Magazine in 2009 as Editor-in-Chief. She remained there until 2016 when she left for three years to become a freelance contributor to The Globe and Mail and several other Canadian magazines. She returned to Fashion Magazine as Editor-in-Chief in August of 2019. And in 2020, she really led the transformation of fashion from a traditional women's magazine to a brand for all ages, genders, ethnicities, sizes, and orientations. Bernadette Mora, it truly is such an honor to have you here. Welcome to Finding Your Bliss. Thank you, Judy. It's really lovely to be here. What I love about your story, in addition to you having, I think, the dreamiest dream job in the industry, is that you had a mentor early on in your career who, in spite of you saying that you wanted to be a music journalist, sort of took a good look at you and suggested that you would make a great fashion journalist. And that Lucille Ball light bulb moment or aha moment, as Oprah would say, happened for you. And you realized that it was actually the perfect suggestion for you. And off you went. Sometimes it helps to have a mentor who sees who you are, who gets you. And it also says a lot about you that you listen to this person. What do you remember about that moment early on in your career? Well, I was at a point where I knew what I wanted to do. I really wanted to be in media. And in fact, I had originally wanted to go to Ryerson, which was not a university at that point. It was a technical institute, but they had a really great, well-respected media program. And that's where I wanted to go to school. And my parents, neither of whom had been to university, wouldn't let me. They said that they would pay for me to go to U of T, where I had been accepted, but they would not pay for me to go to Ryerson. So I kind of grudgingly had to leave 
my dream. And I went to U of T for four years. I studied liberal arts. I studied mostly sociology and psychology. I came out of it, strangely enough, with a criminology degree, only because I had just been taking courses that I had enjoyed. And that's, I had a lot of credits for that degree. So I ended up with a degree there and I got out of school and I had no skills. I was, after four years, I was no closer to my dream of wanting to be in media. So I stumbled upon a course at Sheridan College that was media writing course for radio, television, print, and mm-hmm. film. And it was both commercial and and uh, editorial writing. And I thought this is the perfect thing for me. I took it for a year. I went and worked in the field. I was editing closed captions. Of course, that's all automated now. But at the yes. time, it was people sitting, transcribing, and editing down captions for television shows and commercials. And on the side, I just wanted to freelance write about music. So I was at a point where I was really kind of forging ahead to my dream job, but I really was nowhere near it when I met Mike Lawson at Canadian Press. And I had been introduced to him through someone I knew. And so that's a piece of advice I always give people. Use your connections, network. Like It's so important. And it was Mike who said, um, basically told him I wanted his job, which he was a music critic. <laughs> and he said, well, write, you know, fake music review for me, just an album review, just so I can see if you can write, which I did. And then he called me a number of months later and he said, I'd like you to write for me. There's just one problem. It's not about music. And I said, what is it? And he said, I'd like you to write fashion. And it was like, you said it was that moment that the light bulb went off. And so I knew that was the exactly right thing for me to be doing. And I could not see it myself. I had been consuming fashion magazines ever since I was old enough to have an allowance. And it was, yeah, it was the perfect fit. So I started writing those stories, fashion stories. And he, at this point, had been made editor of a lifestyle package of stories that was sent out to newspapers across the country. The Toronto Star being one of those member papers that was running my stories. And then so the Star called me to freelance for them. And then Flair, the editor of Flair magazine, saw my pieces in the Toronto Star and they called me to write for them. So everything snowballed very quickly. But it was a very different world because for a couple of reasons. One is that there at the time, there was a huge barrier to entry. I mean, today, if you want to do any kind of like media job, you can just jump on TikTok and create your own profile and go out there and build a following. So there's no barrier to entry. Yes. And the other thing is that fashion had not become a part of popular culture yet, the way it has since it has merged with the music worlds and the film worlds. And so there weren't a lot of people vying for those jobs. I mean, it didn't even dawn on me that fashion writing could be a career at that point. Whereas today, like every second person I meet wants to be a fashion editor. So it was a very, very different time. But I was very, it was a great fit. Um, My career snowballed very, very quickly. And then I wound up um, very, not long after it all, first on staff at Flair. And then I then was offered the position at the Star and I took that and I was there for 20 years. 
for 20 years was incredible. And I just want to go back a tiny bit and just pick up on something that, and I know this as a life coach, is when people compliment you or notice something about you, we often don't listen, but they're often right. Listen to the people that love or know you or respect you and have ideas for you because they often have great clues as this person did. This, right, this editor sort of got who you were and you were smart enough to listen to it as well. Well, that's another piece of advice that I give younger people is that don't be stuck on anything and explore those ideas that people give you or those doors that open. If you are really stuck on something, then you're going to miss all the possible opportunities that could Mm -hmm. be there that you never would have dreamed of. So being flexible and open-minded, I think is a really, really important part piece of not just a career path, but of anything, right? Because life throws us all curveballs that we never expected. And we've just got to be open to exploring those and walking down those paths and being Mm -hmm. open to getting advice from people around us who know more than us and see us in a way that we don't see ourselves. Of course. Of course. You also had a mother that was a fashionista. Like you came by this very honestly and you did devour magazines. Could you tell us what that looked like? Like what were the magazines that you were loving as a young girl and as a, as a teenager? Well, one was magazine that I now edit, which did not exist. It was born when I was a teenager. It was born in 1977 and it was a spinoff of Toronto Life magazine. It was called Toronto Life Fashion for many years. Yes. And oh... I subscribe to that. I subscribe to Flair. I subscribe to American magazines like Seventeen and Glamour. Yes. <laughs> and Vogue. I went down to Warner Store to buy that. Never, you know. So yes, I had a big stack beside my bedside. And it was the Canadian magazines that I read cover to cover though. Wow. Because that was the Canadian content that was the most relevant to me. The prices in them were a little bit more, it was more of a varied price range in the Canadian magazines because they were including local Toronto designers. And so I really got into magazines. I've always loved to read. I read books as well. But yeah, I was a real magazineaholic when I was a teenager, for sure. And that's another clue, right? And these are all the little clues that, you know, they're like little pieces of fabric and you put them all together. and, And so it was almost like so clear that this was what was meant for you. So I kept thinking about you when I recently interviewed Jeannie Becker, who has been on the show a number of times. The first time she was actually on for a two-part series, but I interviewed her recently talking about her upcoming show where she was going to be interviewing Linda Evangelista. She'd already written about her in The Star, and now she was going to be doing it live. And it's so funny because I saw a beautiful post by you your Instagram story of you sitting in the audience watching them on the stage. So you were also a celebrity in the audience that night. What was it like to witness that conversation before I ask you about your own take on Linda Evangelista? Well, it was great to see them chatting together. I mean, it was just so meaningful because both of them have had their own breast cancer journeys. And of course, I knew, I've known them both for many, many years, right back to the 80s. So to see them, to know where life has taken both of them and that they've both had this challenge that they've each had to face and then to be together there on stage talking about it. It was really quite remarkable. It's another, like I said, life throws you these curveballs and you just don't know where they are going to lead. I can't imagine either of them ever expected to be in the position that they were and 
Yeah, it was really quite something. I was really happily surprised how many young people there were in the audience because it's great to know that both Jeannie and Linda are resonating with the younger crowd. It was quite remarkable. It was wonderful. Yeah, that's so cool. Can you tell us more about your interview with Linda Evangelista? I take it you've interviewed her many times, but I know there's one that I'm thinking about. Do you have a moment with Linda Evangelista that really resonates? I guess it was probably the first time I interviewed her. She had come home from Europe and New York with her husband at the time, Gerald Marie, for Christmas to visit her family in St. Catharines. And I interviewed her at the Four Seasons Hotel and we sat down and for a lengthy chat and she had a glass of wine and she was super relaxed and her, she was wearing this incredible Chanel suit and her hair at that time was blonde and all in these big curls. And she's really, really captivating. But I think that what's been really interesting about Linda is to see how her career has evolved and how she herself has grown into such a really gifted and expert model and how seriously she takes posing in front of a camera and making art, creating art, collaborating with the other people on set to create a photograph that is something that is really special because that takes a lot of time. A lot. So many things. It's so, so true. You've interviewed many supermodels and I think everyone's favorite or an absolute favorite in the world is Cindy Crawford, who I also had a wonderful connection with years ago. I wrote a book called Love Mummy, Writing Love Letters to Your Baby. And she wrote me a letter saying every mom should have this on their bedside table and her beautiful pink and white personalized Cindy Crawford stationery. I was so touched and it was handwritten, not typed. And it was just lovely. What are your memories of your original interview with Cindy Crawford? Cindy really impressed me. She was very together and she would have been, I'm not sure how old she would have been at that point, maybe 20, but not much older. And she really had her head together at a young age. And I remember her saying to me that everybody thinks models are stupid. We're not stupid. We're just uneducated because most of us leave school to work yes. full time when we're 16 or not much older. So that really, mm-hmm. I thought was a very powerful point. And it is, you know, it's true that that's when models really yes. can cash in. Sure. It's in those high school years or early college university years. And those are years where they are very tempted to leave their education and pursue that. And many go back to school and they wind up on a career path that is completely different from the fashion world and from what they're doing. But that also struck me. And I remember that when I'm interviewing musicians, actors, other people who are in fields, creative fields, where they often were a, let's say, a traditional education is not the one that is best suited to them or best for their career growth. And so they may not have that experience or they may not have even a degree that brings a certain level of self-confidence or they may feel insecure because they don't, didn't finish high school or they didn't go to college. 
And I think that there are a lot of great talents out there. You know, school is, school is not for everybody. I mean, I'm not saying quit school, trust me. But I've seen so many very, very successful people that have, especially in the creative worlds, left school early for a variety of reasons and done very, very well. But yeah, I always think back to that when Cindy said that, because it was, she was, she's right. They're not, models are not stupid. They're just not educated. I think she is such an excellent point. And I think she also had that, I don't know if it's self-deprecating, but certainly the ability to laugh at herself when in the supermodel documentary series by Apple TV, she talks about how I didn't even know what a Hermes scarf is, but I would say, oh, the Hermes scarf is coming or Hermes or whatever it's called. She didn't even, she didn't even know what it was, but she had to act like she did. And she quickly learned what that was and what it meant. And, And I think she became well-read. She read a lot and she became a very educated, very savvy businesswoman, which is, I think, what happened to a lot of these supermodels. I don't know if you would agree with that. Yes, definitely. I mean, they, they go on to do all kinds of different things. I mean, Daria, where, where Bowie moved to Ireland to study plant medicine, or I can't, I'm probably not using the right term, but yeah, I mean, they do all kinds of interesting things. Modeling, Linda grew up wanting to be a model. That, and that's very telling because she took it very, very seriously, as we can see. But many people do not. Many use it as a, a way to earn money yes. to help support their families because they may have come from new immigrant situations. They may be coming from Eastern Bloc countries. That There was a whole wave of Russian models that emerged after the fall of the Soviet Union. And, you know, these were young girls whose families were... They were the primary breadwinners. This was their family's opportunity to do better in the world. So there's all kinds of different reasons why people model. And it's not necessarily because they want to be models. Often it is just they won the the modeling lottery. They have the height. (laughs) They have the bone structure and that the industry loves. And they do it for a few years and then they go on to pursue what their real passion is. What was it like for you to sit down, and I'm not sure if it was with a glass of wine or such a cup of cherry tea, but to sit down and watch the four-part uh, supermodel documentary series. This was a life that you are living, have lived for 30 years in every way possible. We'll get to more of what that is. But what was it like for you to watch that? Was it a hoot? Was it fun? It was kind of weird because I had been at many of the shows that were shown in the documentary. I had been in many of those situations. Hmm. I had been in the Cour Carré du Louvre when the shots were, you know, panning around. In fact, I was looking going, is that me? (laughs) Um, Because I was there. Yeah. And I watched it with two sort of frames of mind. One was, like, oh my God, I'm reliving all of those years, those supermodel years. I was there when Linda emerged on the runway at the Versace show with her haircut. And you could feel the entire, like there were hundreds of people in the room and you could feel the whole room go, (gasps) like, it was like, Like for a model to cut her hair, you have no idea. This is like for a hockey player to cut off his arn. It's like, (laughs) what what has she done? 
it was so stunning because every model had hair down past their shoulders at that point. Time, yes. And it was like, but she looked so great. And I remember speaking to her about it. And she said that she was thinking of cutting her hair. And she asked her mother and her mother said, well, nobody has short hair. And Linda thought, that's right. Nobody has short hair. Therefore, I'm going to stand out and not be just one, one in the crowd. So that's exactly what happened. She, you couldn't take your eyes off of her because she looked so good. The cut was so perfect. She has such a long neck. It's about as long as my leg. And she looked so incredible. So, and that was it. Her career just let, let on, it it ignited. It was, it was on fire after that moment. From that moment on, it was really, really incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Before, before we get to the Toronto Star and your glory newspaper years there for 20 years as a fashion editor, which is really how I remember you and know you. I just wanted to say that I love the fact that these supermodels were the first influencers. Like in the 40s and 50s, it was the movie stars, the Elizabeth Taylors and the Marilyn Monroes. And then came the models like the Twiggies and the Kate Mosses. And then, of course, the 80s and 90s were reserved. And you were part of all of this for this whole new brand of beauty and glamour. And that was the supermodel. And in the film, Cindy says it wasn't about the hair and it wasn't about the makeup and it wasn't about the fashion. It was about the women. What do you think she meant by that? It was about the women. They were superstars. Everybody else on the runway around them was almost like filler (laughs) until they walked out. It was, it's a kind of a terrible thing to say, but they were that powerful and they were that, it's funny, you know, and I don't think the documentary really explained, I mean, it tried to explain why that was. And I don't even know why that was. It was just that there were these four or five incredibly beautiful women that the camera loved and they came together in a way they kept getting hired. They got all the jobs. I mean, there were issues of Vogue that you would pick up and they would be in every campaign and in every shoot. And I remember thinking like, is, is that it? Will there never be another (laughs) model ever again in the pages of Vogue? They were that, powerful and then there was that crossover moment where they did the george michael video yeah and that was sort of where fashion and music really clicked and then it became oh okay this is interesting and that that started that whole synergy between the fashion and music worlds Mm -hmm. so it was very powerful it was about them way more than it was about what they were selling Mm -hmm. it was not just them it was the fantasy of who they were. Mm -hmm. They were taking the Concord. They were going to Africa for two weeks shoots. Linda did a whole thing in China, I remember. It was the first time that we got to sort of experience these incredible lives that models were living. And it was really this, at that time, budgets were getting bigger because of they were able to really sell. So magazines were chock full of advertising. They had budgets for these incredible international shoots. So it was, it really, really was about them mm-hmm. because they were the ones who were selling moving product, I think as somebody yes. in, the, in the documentary says. 
And it was this allure, this glamour, this unspoken. And we didn't have social media. So we had to go to your magazine or your newspaper articles or anything that you were involved with to actually find out or to, you know, Jeannie's show to find out what is actually happening in the fashion industry. We couldn't just go to TikTok or to Instagram. There was no such thing. So you saw it live and then you had to wait for the magazine to come out on the newsstands. And there's something very exciting about that. Can you take us back to those glory newspaper days at the Toronto Star? I don't think that newsrooms are quite the same anymore. What was it like in those days getting that job in that exciting newsroom as a fashion writer initially and what your memories are of those early days, the fast paced, shorter stories, snappy, make it happen. That must have been thrilling. Don't answer that just yet. We're going to go on a short commercial break. More with Finding Your Bliss and Bernadette Mora when we come back. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio. And just before the break, I was asking you, Bernadette, about those thrilling glory days at the Toronto Star. It was really thrilling. That's where I realized, like, I really am a newspaper person. And I just loved the immediacy of things. I loved the access that being with the Toronto Star gave us. There were healthy budgets. I mean, my first trip was to Europe for five weeks because there was a promotion of Canadian designers at Liberty Department Store in London. So I went to London to cover that. Then I went to London, Milan to cover the shows there, back to London because the order of shows at that time was Milan, London, Paris, New York. It's changed now. So it's New York, London, Milan, Paris. So I went to London, went to Milan, back to London to cover the shows in London, and then to Paris. And (laughs) the other thing was that there was no Euro. I was traveling with three currencies and I was doing my expense report report in three currencies for five weeks. Oh my God. A lot of bookkeeping. (laughs) (laughs) However, what an incredible opportunity. What an incredible experience. I, yeah, Jeannie and I both say we lived in the glory days of of media because there just isn't anywhere near the, the budget for that kind of travel today but there also isn't the need we don't travel to cover the fashion shows here fashion magazine we go to some of the some of the special shows that our big advertisers invite us to like could be a couture show or a destination resort Mm -hmm. show but we don't cover the go and do the collections like we used to because it's not necessary they're all over at as you say, TikTok and social media, right? Mm -hmm. As they happen, not even after they happen, as Mm -hmm. they are unfolding. 
So it's not necessary, but there are other things that we can provide that um, others like, like what kinds of things? Well, I think it's the, it's the analysis. Some of it is the analysis, the journalistic mindset to look at things in a critical way, to connect the dots between things. A lot of the Mm -hmm. people who are reporting are take a very, very niche approach to things, which is how they can build their audiences. But we come with a huge audience. Not that I take any of that for granted. I don't. And we work very, very hard to maintain and grow our Mm -hmm. audiences. But we have a team. We have experience. We have great relationships with brands so that when we do need access or we do need clothes to shoot, those types of things, we can get them. And we also just come at things with a journalistic perspective. So where it is not just, here's what happened, but with a little bit of analysis as to what, and and pulling out things that we think are meaningful and interesting. That's, you know, sort of the, anybody can do that, but you are a seasoned journalist who can take a look at the whole and give everyone a huge perspective. Is there a Paris Couture show, runway show that you attended that will always stand out in your mind? And then the socializing afterwards with the designers, probably at a great French restaurant. Is there a moment in Paris or Milan that stands out for you? There is one. Well, there are many, many, many. I've had many incredible experiences. But that first season that I did those five weeks on the road and I was filing like 10 stories a week and I had technical challenges because computers and modems, we had to file over modem and things did not work as easily as they do today. And I got my last show was the Saint Laurent show and I was so completely exhausted and I remember the last, when Monsieur Saint Laurent was doing his shows, he would do it old school. So the model would come out holding a card with number one on it and a voice would say, numero un. And that was for the ladies to write down which of the outfits they wanted to order, which is oh. the they liked. <laughs> so this very hypnotic with the music on and it was very old school. They moved in the old, very old almost 50s kind of way, very poised and very statuesque. It went up to like numero 80 and it got up there. And these, the last 20 outfits were white gowns. And it was like these angels floating across the runway. And one was more beautiful than the other. And I just lost it from exhaustion from this incredible moment of beauty, this legendary designer, this throwback to this old salon style presentation. And I just felt like I was in bliss. Um, there was, (laughs) there was a moment of bliss that was so touching and I just felt so, so incredibly lucky to be there. And so that was definitely one magical moment out of many. Thank you for sharing that. It doesn't get any better than this, right? Those are the moments that, you know, what's the song? These are the moments, the moments we live for. Don't listen to my voice. (laughs) These are the moments, right? You've mentored top Canadian designers, Bernadette, bringing them onto the world stage. What does that look like exactly? And 
Can you just say more about that and maybe mention some of the dream designers that you had the pleasure to mentor? Well, one that stands out recently, I mean, yes, I've given my two cents to many designers over the years. One that stands out that I'm very proud of is Triarchy, which is a denim brand. And I met Adam, whose last name is completely escaping me right now from Triarchy. And he was just starting his brand. And I was judging a competition, a new designer competition that Mercedes-Benz was behind. And he showed me his whole line of, he had this big line of denim, but also he had other pieces in there as well. And I said to him, I said, you know, your denim is so strong and it's really important to have a niche, have a strong angle and to have something that makes you stand out from the crowd, like a haircut in a world of long-shouldered models, long-haired, shoulder-length-haired models. And so he, I, I said to him, I, I really think you should just focus on denim. And he Great was de- working to develop a sustainable process for making his denim. And I said, I think you should just lean into that and go down that path and see where that takes you. And lo and behold, it's been 10 plus years, 15 years, I think. Triarchy just won an award at the CAFA Awards. They have Ah. created the first sustainable stretch denim now. They have stats on how much water they have saved with the denim that they've produced. I've seen their capsule collection in Goodman and other incredible retailers. So that's one that, that comes to mind that where I, and he came back to me, you know, many times after and said, thank you so much for putting me on that path. And there you go. There's somebody who listened and there were other designers, Montreal designers untitled who were in also in the same competition and they didn't win. And afterwards I went and I spoke to them and I said, guys, I said, you're really really talented but and I gave them some feedback where I thought that they should pay a little bit more attention to what they were doing and they came back a year or two later and they won competition and they said thank you so much because if we had won back then we wouldn't have been able to take advantage we wouldn't have known what we know now we wouldn't have been smart enough and experienced enough to be able to actually use the money that we won in the right way. So yeah, there've been lots of instances. And to be honest, like of all of the incredible champagne filled first class experiences I've had in my career, the ones that are the most meaningful is when a designer says, thank you, you really helped me achieve something or you really helped me hit a target, really kept me going when the going got tough and I was ready to give up. Those are the things that mean the most to me. It's the people knowing that I've made a difference in their lives. That's the most meaningful to me. That's where I get the most gratification. So incredible. Can you give me just a couple of words about each of these people that you've interviewed? Just a few words on each of them, starting with Carl Lagerfeld. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. Carl Lagerfeld, brilliant, impatient, and just so prolific and creative and just such an incredible force and generous too, really 
generous man. I felt for him because the last time I interviewed him was a few years before he died. He came up to Toronto for a condo project that he had lent his name to. And he was very warm and friendly. And I, I got the feeling a bit lonely too. I think he was a, a real workaholic wow. in every sense of the word and somebody whose family was the work, his work family. Those were his friends and family. And so I feel like he was a little bit of a lonely guy. He was just an incredible man though. Gianni Versace. Yes. Well, so I interviewed him in his palazzo in Milan after one of his shows. And it was a little bit like on autopilot. I had the feeling like what a difference between him and Issei Miyake, let's say, um, where Issei was very in the moment and very, it was a very genuine conversation. Gianni, I know we shouldn't speak ill of the dead, but I feel like he was a guy who was very wrote robotic i feel like it was a bit of a performance so and that is something i've encountered with other people along the way interviewing him was a performance that he was giving he knew why he was doing it It was for obviously for promotional reasons but yeah i had a little bit of i got that vibe there's one there's uh, to me, I, I don't even know if I can call her a fashion icon, a beauty icon. I don't even know how to describe one of the most inspirational beauties of all time. And of course, I'm talking about Audrey Hepburn. And you interviewed her. Before we hear about Bernadette's conversation with the legendary Audrey Hepburn, we're going to go on a short commercial break. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio AM 740. And just before the break, I was asking you, Bernadette, about what your interview was like with Audrey Hepburn. Well, I spoke to her at an event that was in Paris, and it was a retrospective of Hubert de Givenchy's work um, at the Galleria, which is a museum there. And I saw her and talking to Monsieur and I thought, well, I have to go and try to get a quote from her. So here I was, like this little, <laughs> young, timid <laughs> reporter from the Toronto Star. And so I waited for my moment to kind of break in. And so I went up to her, and I, I don't even know what I said. I was so verklempt. My knees were knocking. <laughs> I was sweating profusely. And she was like, oh, how lovely. You're from Canada. And she had the uh, warmest smile. And uh, she was very, very thin, I remember. Like, I had never seen anybody that thin in my life before. Like, her back was like the width of 
I don't know, like a two by four. Like she was so tiny, but tall and lanky and beautifully dressed, of course, with her hair pulled back in that classic Audrey Hepburn bun. And she was just absolutely charming. So I just got a, you know, a few quotes about from her about his work. Um, But yeah. And then there was this, commotion that was happening at sort of the other end like down a hallway I heard all this like kind of rustling and rumbling and I thought what is happening so I went to the edge of the room there was a corridor a long corridor and I looked down and there was a light that got brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter and flashing the light was flashing and flashing and then around the corner came Yves Saint Laurent who was a recluse who never went out anywhere except maybe to his little corner restaurant to get dinner. And Yves Saint Laurent had come to pay his respects to Hubert de Givenchy at his show. And the paparazzi were going crazy taking pictures of him. And that's what all the lights and the sound was. And it was, you know, it was one of those pinch me nights. Here I've got Saint Laurent on one side, Audrey Hepburn on the other side. And it was like, where am I? Like it was, isn't that incredible? I want to, I want to talk and I know we're getting to the end of the time and this is very important stuff. So you served as Bernadette's fashion as editor in chief of fashion magazine between 2009 to 2016. You left briefly for three years to become a contributor to the globe and mail and other magazines. And you came back in a glorious way in 2019, again, as editor in chief to Fashion Magazine with creative and fashion director George Antonopoulos. And you really have just transformed the magazine. And I'm wondering, first of all, if you took off those three years for work-life balance to be with children or what was the impetus to do it? And then again, what made you come back to turn it into this? So why did you leave? What happened when you came back and what is happening now? What happened in 2016 was that there was, there was a regime change and it coincided with wanting to take a break. So it was a, a really great opportunity for me to step back and look at the magazine as a consumer and to see it in the context of what else was going on in the world. And so three years later, when Ken Hunt, who became the new publisher of fashion, called me to talk and I said I would come back, but I didn't want to do what I was doing before. I said, the world has changed. The society has changed. We need to really lead with inclusivity and with inclusivity with not just genders, but all ethnicities, all sexual orientations, all ages. We need to reflect Canadian society and the world around us. And so I put together a proposal for him and he loved it. And I came back. And it's been really fantastic to be able to have that creative freedom as an editor, to have a publisher that trusts you so much to take that risk because it's a business risk to change a magazine so drastically from a traditional women's magazine. But it's been incredible. The response from partners and advertisers has been fantastic. It's set us apart in the market. It kind of led, it was ahead of its time, I feel. A lot of other traditional women's magazines have put, you know, men on the cover since we've done that. So it's been, 
it's been very, very gratifying to be able to shape something new and to be able to really bring it into the modern age or into modern times so that it's really keeping up with the times. And we have now we have a very, very strong digital team, of course, which is critical to a magazine's success today. We have a fabulous TikTok. We just haven't held back from change. And I think that is the secret to career longevity and certainly for media longevity. I mean, you just have to swing with the times, roll with the times. And um, and now we've gone into events, which have been very, very successful, both with our audiences, where we get to come face to face with our fashion fans and where we get great support from our partners and our advertisers. So it's been a really, really gratifying three and a half, four, four years I've been back now. So yeah, and there's still lots of work to be done. Lots of work to be done. I think we're gonna we're poised for a really, really strong 2024. So I'm really looking forward so to it. So exciting. I so I, I look so forward to reading it always. And I, I love that you as the editor in chief do a cover shoot and get a whole new outfit and do a whole like photo shoot when you write your cover, your editor's letter at the beginning of the magazine. Like that's I just love that. It's so glamorous. What is the biggest change you've seen in the fashion arena and what has stayed the same? I kept thinking of the French expression, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Exactly. In the media world or in the fashion world? Well, in the fashion world and in all of it, in all of it, because it's changed so much. I even remember interviewing Terry Hart about how the junkets are different. Like it's all different since COVID, since everything. But what's the same? What's changed just in a sentence or less? What's changed is that people feel free to express themselves and they don't necessarily feel like they have to adhere to anybody else's idea of what it means to look good. Everybody has their own definition when it comes to their hair, their grooming, their makeup, their even their, you know, piercings (laughs) and tattoos and their clothing and accessories. So that's been really, really exciting. What's changed? I think actually really practical things or what hasn't changed. The practical aspects have not changed. Not very many many people have unlimited means for all of these things. That has not changed. And that may be the only thing that's not changed because, um, well, closet size. Closets have gotten either (laughs) much bigger or much smaller. (laughs) (laughs) You live in a house, they've gotten much bigger. You live in a condo, they've gotten much smaller. So, But no, I mean, one of the exciting things about fashion is that it's a reflection of what's going on in the world. And so therefore, it means it's always going to be changing. And so it's just our job here at fashion to keep up with that and to remain relevant and to reflect what's actually happening in the world. Fashion I'm concerned that I might need to do a two-part series like Jeannie. It's a couple more. I have about 40 more, but I'm just going gonna, 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 to uh, reduce it down to a couple. What are your top fashion tips for our listeners? They're hanging on your every word. Top fashion tips from Bernadette Mora, 2023-2024. What is it? I don't know if I have any top fashion tips. I mean, because everybody's today is just dressing to express themselves. I would say spend more, buy less. That would be probably my first tip. Today I'm wearing a Celine, old Celine from the Phoebe Philo years, which is probably 15 years old. I put it on, I haven't worn it since last winter. It's a very sort of heavy silk shirt with a big gold button (laughs) at the neck. 
And it felt so good when I put it on because it was, I bought it on sale. I'm a sale shopper. I bought it on sale, but it was still a lot of money, but it's something that just feels so good when I put it on. So that that. would be my top tip. Um, Just spend more, buy less. I love that. What do you love about fashion? Like ultimately, like, you know, this could be music I could be asking about or anything, but it's, it's the thing that you know best, the thing that you do the best, you wear it, you live it, you are it, you know, you're sort of the person that helps us all figure it out. What bag to wear? I never know, by the way, what bag to wear. I know you say it has to be functional and beautiful, but I always get the beautiful part, but not the functional. What do you love about fashion? I guess I just love the feel of something really great against my skin. I love the feel of a great leather handbag. I love the feel of putting my foot into a really soft leather boot. Mm. I, of course, I like how it looks as well, but I do like the tactile aspect of good quality and how it feels against my skin. And I like, I don't know, I just like that power of transformation Mm-hmm. I love putting makeup on in the morning and, you know, the older one gets, the more <laughs> grateful I am to have makeup to put on in the morning. And yeah, it's the transformational aspects of it too, I think, because we can, you know, we can, we're not the same person every day or even in every part of the day too, right? So we can, you know, dress one way on the weekend to feel a certain way and then another way if we're going out to dinner with Mm -hmm. friends and family and another way when we go to well when I go to a fashion event or when I go to the office so it's yeah it's that transformational power that is a lot of things do you do you plan your outfit the night before or do you feel the inspiration on the day of like you wake up and go I feel this or do you like to do it in advance even if I do it in advance I'll put it on and it'll be like no that's nope. not right. <laughs> it's true. this shirt was not I had some I had another idea when I was looking in the closet and then I saw this shirt and I'd forgotten about it honestly that's why I love going shopping in my closet it's so much fun what we can discover yes and, and I thought, oh my gosh, that's perfect for today. Great. So That's great. That's great. I, I remember Deanie Petty once telling me when she was on the show and I worked with her for many years on her show that she took something from every makeup artist and she learned how to do her own makeup. And so for years on the Dini Pay show, many people don't realize this, she did her own makeup. She took a little bit from this artist, that artist, this artist, and took the best of all of it. Do you have your own very solid makeup routine that you've learned from looking at all of these people backstage on catwalks and in dressing rooms behind the scenes? Have you sort of learned from the best? I have and I still pick up tips because my makeup done for big events and I usually like a mirror so I can see what the makeup artist is doing because yeah they're always coming up with new tips Mm -hmm. and tricks and um yeah it's a great way to learn I mean if you can treat yourself to get your makeup done by makeup artist but there are also you know great makeup artists at uh, places like Sephora and MAC Cosmetics Mm -hmm. you know if you do your shopping there you can also you know pick up tips that way so great I know you touched on this a little bit, but our show is all about finding passion and purpose and doing that very thing you were put on this planet to do. And and I've said this, you ha- seem to just have the dream job, the dream career, but it doesn't happen overnight. You've worked extremely hard for the last 30 plus years. What is your advice to young aspiring 
writers, fashion writers, beauty editors on what it takes to rise to the top of your field in fashion journalism with what in your case seems like remarkable speed and alacrity, but it's a journey. What is your advice to them? Yeah, my advice is focus on the work. Often people are focused on the wrong things. They're focused on the networking. Networking is an important aspect of it, for sure. They're focused on building their social media profile. That's an aspect of it, for sure. But that's not the core of it. If you cannot deliver a solid story that your editor is going to not have to, and deliver it on time, that your editor is not going to have to do major surgery on or wonder if you struggle through the fact-checking process, wondering, you know, can I trust what this person has delivered? It doesn't matter how much social media stardom you have or how much networking you do. You're not going to get a job. You're not going to get very far. So you, first and foremost, have got to focus on becoming the best of whatever it is you want to be. You want to be a dentist? Focus on being the best dentist. You want to be a fashion writer? Focus on being the best fashion writer. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. Just focus on being the very, very best, and then the rest will come. Because it's quite remarkable, the number in media, the number of people who are out there who are calling themselves writers Mm -hmm. who can't write. Mm -hmm. So when you do get an opportunity, an editor will recognize that. It all comes down to the work. What is bliss for Bernadette Mora? Oh, well, bliss is something very simple for me. I have a son. I have two boys. They're both 25. They're twins. I'm very proud of both of them. Christopher is doing his PhD in artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. And Matthew is working at Loblaws full-time and volunteering at a dog spa. Matthew has intellectual, he's intellectually disabled and he has autism. He has many, many, many challenges. But when Matthew achieves something that he feels good about, that is my bliss. Autistic people don't have very many friends. Friendships are very, very challenging. When Matthew is able to spend time with a friend, that is my bliss. So my bliss is probably very, very different from what people think it is. It's not a handbag. It's not an expensive pair of shoes. My bliss is seeing the world accept my son, Matthew. Wow. You're a great person, Bernadette Mora. I knew it. I knew it for all of these years. And I knew I had to have you on this show. And I'm so grateful. It really has been an honor to have you here. I want to thank you very, very much for being on the program today. Well, I'm grateful to you, Judy, for taking me down memory lane. That was really fun. I appreciate it. I know they're going to ask me to ask you, what is the best way for people to contact you, to connect with you on social media, and of course, to connect with fashion. Yes. My email is B-M-O-R-R-A at fashionmagazine.com. That's the best. Or just DM me at Bernadette Mora on Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much. 
Each week, we spotlight a fabulous person like Bernadette Mora, who is living their bliss. So if you're an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, or really anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. Write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. Of course, you can always follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank our wonderful guest, Bernadette Mora, for being on the show today. Also, thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, producer Olivia Weatherall, audio engineer Juliana Yanuciello, senior editor Lauren Kaminsky, video editor Sierra Brown-Rodriguez, audio producer Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. Stay tuned next week for part two of Bernadette Mora and much more. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrack, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.